This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We just heard from Pam Parks, who is a registered practical nurse working through COVID, and her experience is not unusual. It indicates what's happening throughout the profession and for the bigger picture. Let's bring in Vicki McKenna, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, Michael Hurley, president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and vice president of QP Ontario, and Charlene Stewart, president of SEIU Healthcare. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. Thank you very much for including us. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Let's begin with Charlene. How big a problem is burnout uh, now that this has been going on for over a year? Well, I mean, Libby, you say the uh, results are really disturbing. And again, we are telling the province and Premier Ford that the alarm bells are ringing very, very loud right now. Burnout was bad pre-COVID. But now some of the results that you see is 93% of those polled in in SEIU surveys said that they are experiencing mental exhaustion. Uh, 93% same thing, physical exhaustion. They're all over 75% experiencing stress, uh, upper and lower body pain, back pain. I mean, that was uh, existing pre-COVID, but now, as you've heard Pam speak about, it is exacerbated. They are literally falling apart. And you'll hear that, that many of them are leaving and talking about not coming back. Some of them have been off sick because of injury or contracting COVID, and they are seriously thinking about whether or not they're returning. Vicki McKenna, what's happening in your union? Oh, I would echo what Charlene just mentioned. We did some work and survey work prior to COVID, um, of course, not anticipating COVID situation, where we were hearing very clearly from nurses that they were they were experiencing a burnout and fatigue and feeling mentally and physically exhausted because of the shortage of nurses that has existed and is, is compounding. Then COVID hits. So we know, and what we're hearing certainly, and the research that's underway right now is demonstrating exactly that, that nurses are at the brink and that there needs to be concerted effort in order to sustain the workforce and support the nurses that are out there at the front lines holding that line right now. Michael, what are you looking for? Well, I mean, a, a third of the nurses we polled were not paid when they caught COVID at work. And, and obviously they should be, or when they have to isolate. Most nurses have not, or healthcare workers have not been fully vaccinated against, uh, uh, COVID, uh, even though they're working in hospitals that are overcrowded and, and many people are suffering from, from the variants. Just, do you have um, a and, number on that? On how many haven't, haven't, uh, received a second shot? Well, you know, very few people have, have received a second shot, uh, and some people have not received a shot at all working in healthcare. But for nurses, I would say most people have not had a second shot. That makes them feel vulnerable. They continue to have problems accessing protective equipment. And finally, they're now in their in their uh, third wage restraint regime in 15 years, and, and they are seeing their, their wages uh, lost uh, to inflation as it starts to take off. So they're feeling uh, unsupported, uh, unvalued, um, and and with respect to like, there's no mental health support for them. They're, you know, when they stack all of these things together, they feel like they're really on their own, even though they have tried so hard to step up for the people of Ontario during what they know is an enormous health crisis for this province. No, right. on, on the other hand, to add on to what Michael just said, just this morning, the government did announce finally that after pushing and pushing from from ourselves and, and I'm sure others to say nurses need to be fully vaccinated. Those working at the front lines do. So today there is an announcement that nurses and health professionals will be able to access their second dose. Uh, however, you know, that was just as something that popped up on the website. We weren't notified of that, but it, you know, that is a positive step, 
But as Michael outlined, there are many other things that are being feeling, nurses tell me they feel oppressed with the legislation that Michael described and the difficulty in being able to care for Ontarians the way they know they they should and the way they want to. Charlene, one of the things the survey said was that um, the respondents uh, or a majority of them said they would say if they were paid more money. So, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the things that they are asking for is more full-time jobs with a, a definite permanent wage increase. You know, in COVID, uh, the public is well aware, and the Premier has said so many times how these people are angels and heroes, and he himself has said, you know, if he had the authority, he would raise the, the wages. Well, he's the Premier. He has the authority. What he's done is demonstrated lack of respect and concern for these frontline nurses because he's imposed bills that cap their wages, and they are already poorly paid. Uh, some of the of the $4 pandemic pay. I mean, what is that? That you respect the work and you recognize the work that they're doing for a short period of time and then you take that away from them? I mean, it is just so insulting. It, at a minimum, that $4 should be made permanent. But uh, definitely, wage increases is something that they've been asking for for decades. And they've come to the point where if they're not going to be recognized, then they are, as as we said, alarmingly they are reporting and proof just last week i spoke to a couple of rpns who are trying to return to long-term care after being off sick on stress leave or contracted COVID. they can't last a week and they and they say i'm done so i mean we have a real crisis here that the premier needs to not say if he could because he can and he should address this immediately is is this a problem because they know doctors have got a pay bump vicky it was a Oh, absolutely. And, and why I say absolutely, and just as Charlene's described, there are some healthcare workers, and rightfully so, have received a temporary uh, pay bump or pay increase. And as Charlene described, you know, they, that needs to be permanent. On the other side, though, physicians have a COVID bonus or a COVID pay scale that they are being paid. But there is thousands of people, including registered nurses and other health professionals in the middle of that, that have received nothing and have no acknowledgement on the pay. And that's why, you know, the nurses say to me, this is principled. Why is one group and another group being recognized and they are not? It's, it's just not right. And the principle of fairness is missing and they feel very disadvantaged by that along with the legislation that restricts our ability to bargain even our contracts with the government wage restraint legislation of bill 124 it's a really you know they feel like they're in a vice is what they feel and and many of them are saying you know what you know i don't know if i can continue uh or i will get through this but i don't know if i'm going to stay and i'm worried Michael, like, what would you say to people who say, well, is is this about burnout or is it about money? Well, I'd say, you know, these nurses are working in the most, uh, you know, the, the hospital system in the country, in fact, in the Western world, with the least number of hospital beds and staff to, to patients. So uh, in, even before COVID, there were enormous workload problems. With COVID now, you have on top of us, uh, 81% in our polls showed uh, uh, dramatic changes in their workload in the last 16 months. And overlaid on that is the anxiety of not being protected, not being vaccinated, mm-hmm. and the feeling like no one has their back. Like if you get sick and you have to isolate, uh, you will not necessarily be paid. You're just disposable. That kind it, of attitude. That, that... And then, and then a refusal to address their, you know, the fact that their compensation does not reflect the explosion that's gone on with respect to their uh, skills and comp- core competencies. I mean, these people feel so undervalued that 40% of them are thinking, you know what, when this is over, we're not going to do it now, but when this is over and the people of Ontario don't have the same urgent need for us, that's it for me. I'm out of here because nobody cares for me. And I think that's something that we need to take pains to address on the, on the, in terms of how we pay people, how we support them if they become sick in our service, how we ensure that they're as safe as they can be with protective equipment and vaccination. Uh, you know, I mean, I think these are things that are pretty fundamental and some mental health uh, and, and psychological supports because, like, 
half the nurses are having difficulty coping. 40% of them describe their mental health state as poor. So, like, this is, this is a, a, a terrible situation, an environment that is, that is, uh, you know, not, not, not good for them at all. And they know that. And so we Just, need to do something about it. Are, are you right. telling me that the union contracts don't have uh, uh, for people who are, you know, public service workers don't have sick days? Part time people constitute uh, about half of the workforce in the hospitals. They comprise more than that in long term care in the home care sector. For the sure. part time don't get paid at all. And, and even full time people who have to isolate because they were exposed to COVID don't get paid. So a third of the people we polled said that they had caught covid and they were not paid for their absence so imagine you're asked to like this doesn't happen to firefighters they're not told go in that burning building but if anything happens to you you're on your own pal that's not no one has the back of these workers and that and they feel that they feel so unsupported they feel so undervalued and that is something that's got to change uh is there any issue with uh you know most Nurses in hospitals work very long shifts. They work 12-hour shifts, and then they have a number of days off. Is that part of the problem in COVID when everything is so intense and the, the, the work is, you know, very physical and emotional? Well, it's Vicky, and I'll say for the nurses that we represent, um, primarily those are registered nurses and nurse practitioners. And yes, they were often extended tours, as you've described, but right now they're not getting much time off. Uh, the overtime numbers, uh, as you can expect, are, are through the roof, and nurses are working beyond, working their normal schedule, picking up extra hours as well to try to to try to support the patients that are in our hospitals in particular and their peers, of course. They don't, they're short. They were short staffed before we started. And now it's even more demonstrative that that is what's going on. So they are working extended tours, which, and then, and then in addition to that, more overtime shifts to pick up and try to help out, you know, in this crisis that we're in. So they are doing everything that they can. Their shift patterning is actually something that in, in, you know, if there's sort of a normal time we get back to that actually allows them some respite and rest. But right now, I can tell you, they're not getting much rest at all. And uh, that is contributing, I think, as well, um, to, to their fatigue and to the, the, you know, the symptoms of burnout that they describe. Charlene, have you had any response? I know that at, at, at the very least, you would like nurses to be exempted from that civil service wage cap. Um, have you had any response on that? No, actually, we've sent in uh, multiple requests, and the bill does give the premier the authority to waive classifications. And if this isn't one that should definitely have that consideration, I don't know which one would. But uh, even some of the employers have agreed themselves to voluntarily go over the 1%. They have negotiated that, and the government has overturned it. So everything has been rejected from that government. But they continue to do temporary uh, honoring and, and thanking uh, frontline workers with temporary short-term wage increases that they see clearly is needed and that there is a, a, a real need to improve those wages, but it's at six months at a time. Who who will work under those conditions? But the answer is no. And we've requested one for the upcoming hospital bargaining too. Vicki McKenna, we only have a few minutes left, and I want to ask you something on, on a somewhat different subject. Now, okay. I, I gather that you are going to court. You have an application for a judicial review of an action by the Chief Medical Officer of Health when it comes to recognition of the aerosol transmission. Correct. Correct. That, Just what can you tell hearing, us about that briefly? Yeah, well, I'll be as quick as I can. This hearing will take place on the 12th, uh, this very week, and it actually will be live-streamed. Uh, apparently, I'm being told that it'll be on YouTube, which will be good for people to be able to review. But yes, we have been pushing for the acknowledgement of the Chief Medical Officer of Health that this virus is borne by air or airborne transmission. And we believe that had the Chief Medical Officer of Health done that, as so hundreds and hundreds of other scientists have done just that, including the CDC, including WHO, 
the World Health Organization, that there would not have been some of the challenges we've had right from the get-go about protecting healthcare workers with the proper equipment, as Michael was describing earlier, that they have access to, to the minimum respiratory protection of an N95 when they're working with COVID patients or those presumed to be, that they have the proper PPE overall, that these things would not have been in question. And and it is per so it's perplexing, it's shocking that here we are in this situation after repeated requests that he has he has refused to do that. That's why we're in the courts and we'll be there on May twelfth. Mm-hmm. And and the courts have the power to tell him to issue that directive? Well, we are following under the, the law of the, the requirement for the Chief Medical Officer of Health to issue orders that are in keeping with the silent science and protect the workers. And that's the principles that we're going in under. And yes, the issue is, is that the courts do have authority to do such things. Okay. Uh, now I'd like uh, 20 seconds from each of you on, on Nurses Week and, and the burnout issue, Michael. I think nurses expect the government of Ontario to listen to the concerns that we've all raised and to act. Vic, uh, Charlene will go first. Uh, well, I agree. It's time to act now, but I just want to take my seconds to just shout out and honor every registered practical nurse, registered nurse, and nurse practitioner out there. Thank you so much for holding the province together over the last year. And Vicki. Yeah, I'd echo Charlene and Michael and say, nurses, you know, find your voice. Uh, you're holding the line. You're standing. You're still standing. You're still proud. And it's so important, uh, the work that you do for everyone and so much appreciated. Absolutely. But find your voice and take some action and let this government know that this can't continue. Well, I think everyone agrees that the job that nurses do is absolutely invaluable and is so much tougher in the midst of all of this. Thanks so much, Michael Hurley, Vicki McKenna, and Charlene Stewart. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's nursing week, and it's no surprise that the strain of working through COVID is taking its toll. A pair of surveys for two of the unions involved find that burnout among nurses is very high, and that about 40 percent have considered or are considering leaving the profession. So first, let's focus on one group of professionals we sometimes overlook, and those are registered practical nurses. And in case you're not aware, registered practical nurses, RPNs, have college diplomas and help patients with more general Health Matters registered nurses have a bachelor's degree from a university and deal with more complex issues. Now, I would like to welcome Pam Parks, who is a registered practical nurse in the emergency ward of a large Durham hospital. Pam, thanks so much for being with us. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, So... What's it like? I would imagine the emergency department is is uh, very busy these days. Uh, tell us uh, how work has been for you. Well, uh, work has been uh, very uh, exhausted after all these months um, of um, flowing through, exhausting, firing, mentally exhaustion and physical at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, I've I've seen how uh, nurses and especially registered practical nurses work, and it's a lot of very physical work as well as mental. That's correct, yes. So uh, typically you're working in an emergency uh, room, and how how many of the patients are arriving because of COVID, and, and how many with other kinds of things? Any sense of that? Um, I would say on any given 12-hour day, um, you would have a mixture of patients. Um, I would say probably about um, a quarter of the patients that are coming through the doors, they have COVID-like symptoms, and uh, the rest would be um, your other illnesses. 
And and how is it to work uh, beside and have very close contact with somebody that is uh, suspected or that you know has COVID? Well, we have to prepare ourselves mentally because um, since the pandemic, um, you have to be ready, under ready, to uh, just uh, be on the alert to uh, say that everyone that are coming in, they may be, because uh, the frustrating part of it is that we don't know. So you have to be um, mentally prepared and ready and have your gear ready just in case so that you are protected, your coworkers are protected, and the patients are protected. And do you, did you find throughout this that you had enough gear? Um, at the start, um, even though the gear was at the workplace at Lakeridge, um, we didn't have it readily available. Um, they were under lock and key. This is at the beginning of COVID, probably within about, probably right into the summer of the first year. Um, we had to fight. We had to um, beg to get the gear. Um, but with the persistence of our health and safety team and um, the union back in with uh, talking to the government, um, they were able to get the directives changed so that uh, um, individuals could get uh, their gear. And how much harder is it to do your work wearing all that gear? Um, um, it, 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 it is not that it's harder. It's more time consuming because you have to stop. And uh, it takes a while to put on your gear to go into the room. And when your patient needs you, some of them need you right away. So it takes away that extra um, time that you could spend with them to uh, put on your gear to get in there so that they are protected and yourself are protected. So it's uh, very frustrating um, at times um, because, uh, you know, your patient needs you, but you have to take that extra step back just to get um, yourself prepared and ready to go in to protect everyone. What are some of the things that you found most disturbing? What I find uh, most disturbing um, is um, the... Um, the conditions uh, that uh, government um, um, expect you to work in, um, if we have the tools to work with um, so that um, patients are protected, we're dealing with lives here. So, you know, you have to have the tools in place. You have to have beds. When people come into the hospital, they're not, well, they're not well. They're here because they need uh, to be uh, protected, nurtured, be respected, dignified. And when you have no beds and you're on a hard, lumpy stretcher, lights on all the time because you don't have a room, that that is very worrisome and bothering for us nurses that uh, are in the background uh, looking after these individuals. Because I know personally myself, I won't be able to sleep in bright lights all along, all the time in an emerge department. As, whereas if you have a bed upstairs in the room, you can at least have your decency and your dignity uh, preserved with a washroom. Hmm, yeah. Um, so, I mean, is the time that it would normally take to transfer somebody from emergency to a bed, it was, is that a lot longer now? Um, it is because um, you can only transfer someone from the emerge department up to the unit if the beds are available upstairs. So it goes by availability of if the person is discharged upstairs, then you're able to get it. Uh, the beds. But uh, um, right now, especially with COVID and people are coming in even quicker, um, sicker, um, they're waiting because they're also full upstairs in the unit with uh, once the patients are stable and able to move upstairs, um, they're waiting also because they need the care. So uh, we don't have enough uh, beds for these uh, patients that are not well. Pam, I was talking about this survey. Have you thought about leaving the profession? How are you feeling about things? Well, I've been in nursing for 33 years, and I can uh, um, confidently say um, I haven't thought about leaving. Um, I've thought about uh, things need to be changed uh, because um, if things don't change, you're going to see a lot of experienced nurses and even the junior nurses that are going to leave the profession if things don't get better for working conditions, that will happen. Well, Pam, I'm, I'm sure that your patients are very grateful to you for everything that you've been doing under a very tough circumstance. Uh, so thank you so much for talking to us. And I guess uh, if you can say such a thing, happy Nurses Week. 
Uh, thank you. We make the best of what we have and we lean on each other. And that's actually what's actually pulling us through uh, these tough times. Uh, we look after each other as nurses because uh, that's who we have to lean on right now. Okay, Pam Parks, who is a registered practical nurse uh, at Lake Ridge, I guess, uh, at a large hospital. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You have a good day and stay Thanks. safe. Thank you. Right now, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk to some of the union leaders to get a bit of a bigger picture of uh, what these very disturbing survey results add up to when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and there is new information putting numbers to some horrifying facts we learned from the military's report on long-term care in Ontario after, during the first wave. The Globe and Mail reports that at Downsview long-term care centres, where one in four residents succumbed to the virus, another 26 died from dehydration and neglect. At Hawthorne Place Care Centers, 51 out of 269 died of COVID-19. And the military says it suspects that those fatalities pale in comparison to the deaths from other causes. It's putting that at dozens. Uh, bottom line, that more people than usual died and were not listed as dying of COVID-19. Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP opposition, is asking the OPP to review whether the commission's findings, and this was testimony not made public and given to the Long-Term Care Commission, uh, constitute a case for criminal charges. And on a positive note, some restrictions in nursing homes have been list, li, have been lifted at those which meet a certain threshold of the rate of vaccination. We'll talk about the pros and cons of that. Also like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-740. And now I'm joined by the Zoomer Squad's David Kravit, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hello, Libby. So, hi, Libby. Hi. So these, uh, this new information about what happened in uh, the, the hardest hit long-term care institutions. Um, it's horrifying. I'm not sure that there is anything surprising, Peter. Nothing surprising. It, it's something we've all, uh, you know, we, we saw the military come in and that terrible report that they released. Um, it was inevitable that a number of deaths were going to be a result, not of COVID, but of neglect. And, uh, you can't get any more neglectful than malnutrition or dehydration. Those are very simple. Um, you know, uh, th- those are very simple to overcome. You just need to be fed and cleaned and um, given a glass of water or, or you know, and, and the inability of the homes to provide it is criminal. I don't know if, if the homes, like the individuals, are, are going to be charged criminally, but the homes themselves, it, it's, a, it's a criminal uh investigation that we'll have to go on and find out who's responsible. David, uh, do you think that this is going to advance anything in terms of the response? I don't, I don't see uh, how they can do anything now. It's retroactive. I agree with Peter. I, I would point out, by the way, that the Morocco report did refer uh, indirectly to this. It didn't have this, these statistics, but it talked about that when the decision was made to not allow uh, loved ones into the home, there was a big drop-off in the quality of care because some of these people, the loved ones, had provided care or at least been able to watch how their their uh, you know relatives inside the home were doing. And there was he was quite critical of that. Um, if you don't have any staff and you're in the middle of this emergency and people are dying for other reasons and you don't have the resources, um, 
I think your liability at minimum extends to, you know, waving the flag and getting some help in there. So I think that there's some culpability there. I, whether they can prove this, you know, criminally in a court, I don't know. But it's 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 horrifying. It's just it's just part of the neglect and the slow response uh, that characterized the whole thing. Uh, Bill, uh, we saw even uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care said, let's get the military in there within 24 to 48 hours. It didn't happen that fast. No, it didn't. You'll recall that we talked about this when it was uh, when it was happening, and it actually took weeks before the uh, extra help was called in. The homes themselves said, look, we're in trouble. Uh, families aren't coming in any longer. We're having trouble getting enough staff to look after people. Please help. And it took weeks for the government to respond. And at the same time, that's when they cut off the inspections. So the government itself wasn't even going into finding out what things were like. So we're a little concerned that uh, uh, that some government people want to put all the responsibility uh, on the homes and on COVID and not admit they were really late responding too. Well, it's interesting, David. Uh, This was in the Globe and Mail. Again, it's from testimony that was not made public. And a response from a spokesperson for Marilee Fullerton said, well, it sounds like this is criminal, uh, and that's terrible. But is that just a a passing of the buck? Well, it it is because it, it completely dances around the fact uh, that it was systemic. I mean, this isn't one rogue, you know, wet law for case where, you know, you have enough nurses in hospitals and you have enough uh, care workers and one or two rogue people go and do commit a crime and then get arrested and charged and convicted. And it it doesn't necessarily mean the whole thing. This was a the ministry that never got out of the starting gate on this, and that's been the problem. Yes, there was systemic problems. Yes, there was weakness. Yes, there was years of neglect. They were faced with an emergency that had to result in throw away the rule book and fix the emergency, and they responded bureaucratically. They took their time. They responded slowly. I don't know that it was even malicious. It's just the way the system runs. They were not geared up to look at this as a dire emergency and to respond accordingly and quickly. Hmm. Let's uh, turn to the other side of things now. So restrictions have been lifted in some nursing homes. They're going to resume communal dining. Uh, Hugging is going to be allowed in certain circumstances. And that's great. People have been asking for that. But the threshold for these things worries me a little bit because the threshold is 85% of residents vaccinated and 70% of staff. And we've talked about this many times before. Vaccine hesitancy among staff in long-term care has been pegged as high as 30%. Bill? It has been. And even in uh, recent weeks when they've been talking about the numbers who are of staff who are not vaccinated, they're still talking over 20%. Uh, and so one in five staff not being vaccinated, uh, being next to our most vulnerable uh, relatives is very frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, I mean, is this on balance better good than bad? And, and do you worry that it could cause other outbreaks? Well, it's a worry, Libby, for sure. But um, I, I guess they're weighing it with the fact that, you know, close to 95% of the residents have had both vaccines. And now they're looking at the... Um, you know, the, the emotional needs of the residents. Like, they need the human touch. They need to see their families and hug them rather than talking through windows or over Zoom. And um, so perhaps they feel, okay, we've got to a point where, you know, we're, we're confident that the vaccines are going to stop transmission, and now it's time to look after the uh, residents' emotional needs. And I think this goes... this. this this is this carries risk, but it also carries benefits, and 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 perhaps they see that the benefits outweigh the risks here. David, how do you see it? I, I agree with Peter. I think that uh, I'm assuming that these ratios apply to all the homes that they're going to open up like that. If there's one rogue 
you know, long-term care home where only 40% have been vaccinated, obviously you'd have to treat that differently. But assuming that you have almost total coverage of vaccinations by the people, you then have to say, well, surely the vaccines uh, protect them. If the vaccine doesn't protect them, what? why did we have the vaccine? I don't mean you need to be casual about this, but I think it it is true that if they have that ratio of coverage, then it seems like uh, looking after the other, the wider range of emotional and physical needs uh, should should become more important. And this is a good move. Well, we know that uh, the older you are, the less efficient your immune system is. Uh, they have a word for it, immunosenescence. So, yes, right. most residents do have two vaccines, but, you know, for them more than the rest of us, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're really fully covered. Well, that's true, but the, but then the question is, what is that? What is the what happens to the risk of getting infected? Period, and the vaccine drives that down. Two shots drives that down by about ninety five percent if it was Pfizer, but it's not ninety five percent of a hundred percent likelihood of being infected. The risk of getting it is low to begin with, and now you've got 95% protection against that. But again, I think the specifics is what matters. I think you have to look at, I don't know about a system-wide 40% of the people, of the healthcare workers haven't been vaccinated. What is true in that home? Who is going to see my mother or my father? Who are the people in that home? And how many of them have been vaccinated? And I think you have to look at those details and not just, you know, broad stroke statistics. Uh, this is a bee in my bonnet. I mean, the workers in long-term care are not required to be vaccinated. In other countries, uh, certainly in private home chains in Britain, they are. In Italy, they are by mandate of the government. And and you talk to any level of authority here, and it's just they just don't want to go there in any way, shape, or form. No, you're right, Libby, and that's really worrisome, too. And, you know, here here in Canada, uh, the province of New Brunswick has uh, uh, taken this challenge on, and they said to their workers in their long-term care homes, it's all right for you to say no to a vaccine, but if you say no to a vaccine, we're going to say no to you in working in our long-term care homes, and they're switching those workers out to work at other areas that are at risk and trying to replace them with uh, with workers who are vaccinated. So there is something that we could do close to what's happening in uh, other country, country, countries. And why we're not looking at it and being firmer about vaccination is really hard to understand. Well, I, I don't I'm not that familiar with the situation in New Brunswick, but here there the workers are employed by private long term care homes. So I don't know where else they could be placed. Uh, David, what do you think? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with Bill on this because it seems to me that the they don't want to go near it because they're talking about privacy issues. But they're not talking. Privacy doesn't mean you have to publish the name and address and a, and a thumbnail shot of the worker that's not been vaccinated. You can preserve their right that the public shouldn't know that person X didn't get a vaccine. These, that, that can be kept private. But you can simply say, if you don't get the vaccine, you can't work here during this uh, pandemic. I don't see why that uh, is such a difficult bridge to cross. Yeah, but someone has to say it. Like the government has to issue a mandate, like they did sure. it, uh, in in New Brunswick, and and no, and you know, I, I haven't seen any mandate in Ontario nope. saying that nope. that uh, people in long term care homes have to be vaccinated or have to, you know. So so until the government actually moves and issues a mandate, or the city or some jurisdiction has to issue something, and then and then people will have to follow follow in line with it. But until right. they do. People are free to um, act as, as they feel is appropriate. Well, the health minister here, Christine Elliott, has said she has no plans to do that. And, uh, you know, um, from what I can gather, everybody is, is afraid to touch this. Yeah, but I, I mean, if, if, if other jurisdictions in Europe and in, in New Brunswick are doing it, I, uh, you know, that's a precedent that Ontario should really consider looking at because, uh, you know, People can refuse a vaccine, you know, that, that's up to them, but um, it has consequences on, on the, the, you know, the sector they work in. 
and and it has to be weighed against that. So until the government rules, uh, we're, we're going to have hesitancy and, and you know, in the long-term care sector. And, uh, you know, it, there's going to be this cloud of, of uncertainty, but the government has to move to, to remove that cloud. Hmm. Well, part of it is, I guess, there's a big, huge staffing shortage. Hmm. David. That's, well, that's true. If they were to kick out the people that weren't vaccinated, it would expose how understaffed they still are. So, you know, there's they, they don't want necessarily that rock to be rolled away and see what crawls out from under because any of those statistics are very uh, still very uh, troubling. They don't have enough. Now, they started out not having enough staff. Now it's even worse. They don't have enough vaccinated staff. And so there's this whole privacy. I think that's a, a, a smokescreen or a fig leaf, whatever you want to call it, to avoid the issue of um, just how thin the resources are. And the new report, if we can circle back and, you know, close the loop with the Globe Mail report, that that even makes it even worse. Now you want more of, you want to risk more of that with, uh, without us being able to, to render aid and comfort to a, a vulnerable population, uh, 80 plus years of age with health problems even before COVID. So for all those reasons, we've got to tap dance, if I'm the government, we've got to tap dance our way through this through this issue. Turning to more pleasant things now, uh, I'm interested in the question of when people are going to be ready to resume certain things, even when they're allowed. There was an interesting poll out last week from uh, Maru, and it asked people, okay, when are you going to be ready to, for instance, travel again or go on a cruise? And some of those uh, responses were 2022, 2023. So, you know, Zoomers, especially younger Zoomers who are still in good shape, they often want to do things like travel, you know, making sure that they, they're able to do it while they still can. Uh, what's your sense of that from CARP members, David? Well, I think that the first thing I think we all have to realize is that this group is so, this population is so big right now, so many millions of people that even the subsections of it represent big markets, you know, in and of themselves. Our travel partners, CARP's travel partners, the travel insurance destinations, uh, some guided tour partners are reporting an uptick in inquiries and in interest levels and an eagerness to get back to it, I'm, I don't want to say it'll happen before 2022, but plans, more people are making plans now in anticipation of this. So the number of people who are ready, willing, and able to, you know, kick it into gear, I think is significant. There will, I think there's a, also a significant group that said, no, I, I've got to be absolutely satisfied and I'm a long way from being satisfied. But I think the move is toward more people resuming. Hmm. And you're thinking it's going to be 2022? Well, uh, you know, we're. I, I don't see much action before the fall because the vaccine program in Canada has been communicated and positioned by all levels of government. Of just be patient. Everything will everything will work through the system by the by the late summer and fall. So I don't. I, I think that's when people are going to start planning, and then you may see some winter getaways next. You know, late fall and winter. But the bulk of it will hit in 2022. But they are making inquiries now. There's booking inquiries. There's some tentative booking dates. And uh, our travel partners are are reporting a noticeable uptake. Not an uptick, excuse me. Not a not a torrent, but noticeable. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that that many many Zoomers have been complaining about a lot is that four month interval between the first and the second dose. And we're starting to hear, well, maybe if the supply holds up, it'll be sooner. But uh, I think the fact is that there are a lot of places that will not allow you in until you've had both shots. True. So how is that affecting our members, Bill? Well, that's that's certainly a, a concern. I, I looked this morning, the you know, although thir- across Canada, 38% of uh, Canadians have now had one shot, but only 3% have had uh, both shots. And that's, that's creating uh, real concern uh, for people who, 
who uh, will not feel safe until they get that second shot. And have, having the, the government make a decision to lengthen the time between the first and second shots uh, against the recommendations of the, of the companies who manufactured the vaccines in the first place, as they uh, as they see it, uh, is, is a huge concern and is a, a dilemma uh, for them. If I can come back to the to the travel question, you know, if uh, the, the the older adults that I'm talking to, people in their in their uh, late seventies, early eighties, uh, they wanted to travel now. They expected to travel uh, now. So. Putting it, it may not seem to some people like waiting for two years uh, is uh, too much to ask, uh, but they want to travel now because they may not be able to travel in a couple of years. So it's given them a, a horrible uh, dilemma. And it's not just travel. It's, a te- you know, this is a, a great population for attending theater or sports events, other uh, mass uh, activities. And it's creating a lot of anxiety and and worry is, when, will we ever, uh, if you're an older person, will I ever get to do this again in my lifetime? Hmm. That's really unfortunate. Peter, what's your sense from uh, people who are reading the magazine and writing letters? Well, I, I, you know, they, they're saying, you know, they're watching Jays games in Florida with people in the stands. They're watching golf tournaments with, uh, you know, the, the golf tournament this weekend had about 100% capacity and no one was masked. And, and I'm looking through the states where where um, those events happened, and, and it looks like they're at 50% of people have received at least one dose. So it looks, in the U.S., they're, they're reopening. Um, they're, the schools are reopening. The sporting events are reopening. You know, people are going to restaurants and things like that. When, when the 50% of the first do- dose target seems to be hit, so... So maybe that's something we'll look at here. Like when we get to 50% of people have received one dose, maybe we'll consider reopening. And when will that be? I think Trudeau said uh, Canada Day would be the day when everyone had one dose. So, um, Really? I mean, the places you're citing are, are deeply Republican, and that seems to be these days correlating with, uh, uh, you know, uh, not being uh, in favor of lockdowns, uh, often not wanting masking and all of that. Yeah, but the the New York is allowing people at sporting events, and uh, their schools are open. And my sister lives there, and she's in her 40s, and she's had both doses. So, like, they're that much ahead of us, and uh, her kids are going back to school with no masks. Or with no social distancing, they're wearing masks, but no, no social distancing. So they they've reached a threshold. New York's at at fifty percent one dose, so they've reached a threshold where they're comfortable to allow people to start um, attending events and going to school and, and going to restaurants. So my understanding is that uh, at the baseball games, they have two separate sections: one for people who are vaccinated and one for people who aren't. That uh, has distancing. It, well, there was no dis- when the Jays played in Houston this weekend. There was no distancing. Houston, it, it looked, yeah. It looked to be also, also Libby. There's a difference between saying fifty percent of the people who have received one dose, but I have enough doses to give everybody their second shot. And of the fifty percent who receive one dose, X percent are already scheduled for the second dose. I'm rolling it out. I've in fact got excess vaccines if I'm the U.S. and Canada saying. My 50% is one with one dose is because I'm spreading that precious first dose around everywhere. I don't have enough vaccines for that second dose. And they must wait four months because i got to spread around this very uncertain supply. So it's two very different scenarios, in my opinion. Right. Hmm. Well, hopefully, you know, uh, apparently there are a number of states that are saying no to more vaccines. So maybe the U.S. will maybe decide they have to unload it and they've got uh, a country close by that will be very happy to buy Very it. happy, Libby. <laughs> um, let's take a call from Tony in Brampton. Hello, Tony. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm Dickety Moo. Uh, the reason the government doesn't want to mandate vaccines for all the long-term care staff is because then they would have to pay them a decent wage. I volunteered at a place for many years, and the women there 
and the men, they work their tails off, and they deserve a raise, a permanent raise. I, I agree totally. But that that's the, the problem. They, they, they don't want to untie the, the purse strings. Okay, Tony, thank you for that. Okay. All right. We are uh, heading towards the end of this segment. What would you like to leave us with, Peter? Uh, I'm just interested to see what the OPP does with uh, Andrea Horvath's request. I'll be following that closely to see if, um, you know, if if charges are going to be laid or investigations launched in this, uh, in in the, um, as a result of the military report. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also there are a couple of lawsuits underway. Was right, the, uh, which will they, be affected if, for sure. That that will affect them too. Yeah, Bill. We are uh, we were slow off the off the mark getting the vaccines in in Canada, and we we need to understand that compared to the states, the number of the percentage of people around thirty five thirty eight percent of people in Canada who have had one of the shots is the same percentage as in most of the states we've been talking about who have had both of them. We're still really far uh, uh, behind, and our best bet is to try to make sure that somehow we catch up and everybody get both shots as soon as possible. And David? I agree with you. I think the focus should be on the vaccines. I'm a little bit less... um, of a believer in what the OPP is going to do. I think that there's a lot of politics around this and a lot of optics. And I mean, they're, they're duty bound to investigate. I'm not saying that, but I think that there'll be better success in civil cases than in criminal cases where you have, you have to prove intent. And I mean, the threshold for a criminal conviction is pretty, pretty difficult. So I'm not a big, I'm not waiting for that to happen. Uh, uh, in a defined way anytime soon. And, of course, remember that the threshold was raised by this government. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. first they raise the threshold, and then they try to pass the buck by saying, ooh, this could be a, a criminal case. <laughs> right. Maybe if they didn't uh, seek to indemnify long-term care homes. But I guess that can be a topic for next week. Ah, exactly. Look forward to it. Okay. Thank you so much, Peter Muggridge, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, it's Nurses Week. And it is a time to celebrate, but the news is not necessarily great. A lot of nurses are suffering from burnout as they work on the front lines of this pandemic. We will talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.